Good God, is that the time again already? Hello and welcome to episode 10 of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we lurk on street corners waiting to chuck the banana skin of comedy into the unsuspecting path of literature. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the mathematical mystery series of comic thrillers published by Farago Books. My guest today is the award-winning radio drama and comedy writer Lucy Flannery, fresh from the highly successful world premiere read-through of her latest play Lydia and George, co-written with Greg Moss. Welcome Lucy. Hello. And uh, we'll talk more later about Lucy and her work, but we're going to begin by looking at the book that she's chosen to discuss, which is Jasper Ford's debut novel, The Air Affair, the first in the Thursday Next series. So, Lucy, how do you fancy summarising the plot? Yeah. <laughs> <And> maybe giving, <laughs> giving us a flavour of why you chose this particular book to talk about. Uh, not much, I think, is a short answer. So if it's OK with you, I think I'd rather describe the premise of Last Chance to See, or indeed start of a 10, your previous <laughs> They're probably a lot easier to define. But yeah, I'll, absolutely. I'll have a go. <laughs> I will have an attempt at this. So yeah. the air affair, our heroine is Thursday Next, who is a literary detective in 1985, but not the same 1985 that we all lived through and remember so fondly. Jasper Ford basically has created a universe which looks a great deal like this one in the main, but in certain very, very important and significant areas is completely unfamiliar and alien. And that, I would suggest, is where all the fun lies. So the central conceit of the air affair is that some people, under certain conditions, are able to enter books they can literally get inside classic novels and poems and witness the narrative unfold and interact with the characters. And indeed, they can sometimes affect the outcome of the story for good or for ill. And that's quite interesting, I think, because that's a device that I think we often see used in children's literature. I mean, Inkart is a very obvious example, I think. And then there have been others, I know, although I can't you know, think of one off the top mm. of my head, but I know there have been many. But I think it's much less common in adult fiction, certainly when this book was published in, in 2001. I can't think of any others. Can you, can you, Jonathan, do you know any I, others? I can't think of anyone. I mean, the only thing I can think of that's similar, but it came out, it was later, I'm pretty certain, is Lost in Austin, the TV series. Yes, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. And that, that also had a sort of similar bonkers yeah. charm, I think. Because yes. the, this is what I think the, the real genius lies. It's not the story. The story's great. I mean, it's a real rollicking roller coaster of a mad adventure caper, and there's lots of action and God knows what going on. But I think the absolute charm is, is the universe that Ford creates. If you think about the world we live in, the actual proper world that we inhabit in the 21st century, I would say that the defining cultural obsession of our times is probably football, in as much as we've got any one single defining cultural obsession. Lots of people love it, lots of people hate it, many people are kind of indifferent, but it impacts us all. I think it's, it's treated with tremendous respect. 
and given a lot of attention and a lot of time and, and it's treated very seriously. And even people who really aren't bothered, they, they will recognise famous players or, or indeed managers, maybe. They could probably name a couple of grounds. They probably laugh themselves sick over that statue of Ronaldo at Madeira Airport. It's, it's there and it's kind of impacting on us, whether we like it or not. It's there in the ether around us. In the world of the air affair, the defining cultural obsession is literature mm. and books. And absolutely everything devolves from that. And it's quite, quite wonderful, <laughs> I think. So in our world, in the real world, we've got Jehovah's Witnesses. In Thursday next's world, if a clean-cut young man in a suit turns up and knocks on your front door, he actually wants to tell you who really wrote the plays of Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> that, that's, yeah. that's the kind of, you know, that, that's the parallels. And he does all these wonderful kind of in-jokes, these incredibly sort of meta references, terrible puns, absolutely shocking puns, some of which are very funny yeah. as well. And, it, and it's, it's a kind of a book lover's book, I think. It's, it's almost like a, a love letter, I think, to, to the real book lover. Do you remember in, uh, in The History Boys by, by Bale and Bennett, there's, there's an incredibly mm. touching and, and poignant scene with um, Hector and Posner, I think it is. And Hector says, when you read a book and it really sort of resonates with you, it really sort of connects with your own personal experience and worldview, it's like a hand reaches out from the page and just holds yours for a second. It's terribly you know, moving mm. and, and poignant image, mm. really, really lovely. Oh, yeah. And what I feel with the air affair, and I really felt this the first time I read it and subsequent reading since, is what I feel emerges from the page is an elbow that still gives you a kind of gentle nudge. It's like a kind of playful dig in the ribs. <laughs> and they're saying, did you get it? Did you? Did you see what I did? You know, did you yeah. see what I did there? Did you get it? And of course we did get it. We do get it because we are those nerdy bookworms. And it makes us incredibly happy, I think, to recognise all those, those illusions and you know, pick up all of the references and all the meta stuff and that. And it's, it's just incredibly good fun, I think. That's, that's the thing. I'm not actually going to give a blow-by-blow -blow version of what happens in the plot because... No, because that, that would be... <laughs> insanity. Crazy, anyway. yeah. <laughs> it would, it would indeed. <laughs> but I would yeah. say that... The, there are sort of certain little kind of quirks where the world departs from our world. And one of the things is, I mean, they have the same sort of kind of shitty cars that we all had in 1985, but they don't have aeroplanes. What they have is, is airships. So mm. Thursday, when she things go sort of quite badly for her in London and she decides to go back to her hometown of Swindon, which is a recurring joke all through the book and indeed through the entire subsequent series of Thursday Next... She takes the airship <laughs> and she just gets on a dirigible, a sort of 20 seater, and goes home to, to Swindon, which just I just find incredibly funny and, and kind of rather sweet. And I quite like the thought of sort of you know, going over the home counties by, by means of the gas bag, as it is affectionately known. Mm. And the thing that really makes me laugh is that her first 24 hours in Swindon are very sort of rocky and up and down. And she she slightly kind of reflects on her decision to relocate and reconsiders a bit and for two pins she says she's going to go and get back on the airship when it makes its return journey from Salisbury now why is that so funny because it's mad it's the most insane route to go from London to Swindon <laughs> to Salisbury it makes no sense whatsoever it should have gone to Bristol and yet there is something quintessentially I think Fordian about that decision to make that that the ultimate destination of that route 
and her going back. And it just, it just, you know, either tickles your funny bone or it doesn't, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And as you can tell, it, it, it really tickles mine a lot. I find you yeah. know, great, great joy in that kind of, that kind of detail. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think you've, you've, you've nailed what it is that, that, that actually makes it, this, this book so funny is, is, is that it, I mean, there aren't many, many funny lines. And, no. and no. in fact, for about the first, almost until Uncle Mycroft appears, there aren't any really funny characters. It, it's there are this sort of quirkiness about it, uh, but it, it is the whole weird world that he's built up, isn't it? That, that, that makes yes. it funny. That's that's very true. I remember sort of listening to um, Andy Miller last week talking about Last Chance to See and that beautifully constructed sentence yes. about the lizard <laughs> looking at you, you know, out of the lizard's yeah. eye kind of thing. You won't get that here. No, there's, there's nothing no, like I, that here. I was, sort of, I, was, I, was, I was looking for that. I'm sort of more attuned to that. I mean, you, you always look for rhythm in comedy, don't you? But you there do. isn't so much of that in, 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 in this book. No, and I think occasionally it's a little bit clunky, if I'm absolutely honest. Mm. This is a debut novel. I think that's, yeah. that's completely forgivable. What yeah. you do get, I think, is some wonderful set pieces. Yes. And just the odd, absolute gleaming nugget of joy. But, um, I mean, there's, there's mean, one... Fan- Sorry, go, go on. No, I was going to say, you mentioned Mycroft, yeah. of, of the yeah. extraordinary inventions. And I, this made me laugh out loud, that there's a reference to... It certainly looked impressive. He, he comes up with all these incredible inventions. Mm. He says, it certainly looked impressive, but not all Mycroft's devices had a usefulness mutually compatible with their looks. In the early 70s, he had developed an extraordinarily beautiful machine that did nothing more exciting than predict with staggering accuracy the number of pips in an orange. <laughs> <laughs> That's sniggering The one that I was going to pick up, it, it's, it's, it's probably within a few pages of that one, actually, where he describes, Mycroft describes uh, a memory a memory de- erasure device. Yes. She says, did the memory erasure device work, Uncle? The what? The memory <laughs> erasure device. You were testing it when I saw you. Don't know what you're talking about, dear girl. What do you make of this? <laughs> it's, it's just a, you, you barely notice it, but it, it's, it's, it's there. so nicely yeah. done, that. It yeah. is nicely done. It's very, yeah. very nicely done. And, and I, <laughs> I think there's just these little flying toasters as well. Oh God, yes, yeah, absolutely. That's a classic sort of '90s reference. (laughs) Yes, indeed. The screensaver. Yes, yeah, that that does. Yeah, and how um, Lee Delamere, the um, services station, got to have its name. It's these little tiny sort of wrinkles like that. I think are are just tremendously good, good fun, and nicely done. Um, I wonder if I could just read a little bit mm. and see if I can find, because I think this sort of illustrates the point that I was making about how literature. This is a, a bit about when she goes back to Swindon and her hotel is hosting a Milton mm. conference when she, when she gets there. And so everybody is basically called John Milton in the, in the entire sort of place. And this is a quote from A Short History of the Special Operations Network by Milonda Floss. Milton's were, on the whole, the most enthusiastic poet followers. A flick through the London telephone directory would yield about 4,000 John Milton's, 2,000 William Blake's, 1,000 or so Samuel Coleridge's, 500 Percy Shelley's, the same of Wordsworth and Keats, and a handful of Dryden's. Such mass name-changing could have problems in law enforcement. Following an incident in a pub where the assailant, victim, witness, landlord, arresting officer and judge 
had all been called Alfred Tennyson, a law had been passed compelling each namesake to carry a registration number tattooed behind the ear. <laughs> <laughs> they're, very, they're very nice, these little kind of um, chapter openings are always preceded yes. by a quote. Um, yeah. It's a bit Flan O'Brien-ish, and certainly later yeah. on in the series, he, he gets very into that with, with the footnotes and that, and has just tremendous fun. And actually, I think it gets more sophisticated and, and cleverer. As, as it goes along. So the whole the whole series is, is a real, real joy. But yeah, but it stands up on its own as well. The Air Affair, I think, is a, is a cracking story in its own yeah. right. Because uh, the, the, the whole world he's building up has got all sorts of, it's, it's not just the jumping to books thing, no. is it? Because no. there's, there's time travel as well. And there's, there, well, there's time manipulation, I think. Time it's slightly different right. from time okay, travel. Yeah, yeah mm. it, it's, it's quite interesting. Yes, and that's a very, very significant sort of, point of you know, of the world and indeed some of the you know the, the plot is sort of predicated on being able to uh, manipulate time although she can't herself it's sort of involuntary but but stuff happens yes and and also just things like like the, the pet dodo that lots of people have got a pet dodo yep. because they bought a reverse extinction kit and yep. <laughs> and hers is an early prototype so it's a bit rubbish and it's got no wings and that but but loves marshmallows it's it's, yep. very, it's very sweet it's very gentle i mean Mm. It's a very gentle, sweet book with an incredibly high body count. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people die quite horrible deaths. Yeah, in this. they do. <laughs> it's they like do a indeed. sort of Bruce Willis film. It really, really is. Yeah. Quite, quite shocking how many people yeah. actually do do die. Mm. And and the names I think are a great source of joy because they yes. they range from you know Milan de Floss, the above mentioned to the antagonist who appears throughout the series of Jack Shit, S-C-H-I-T-T, yes. which gives rise to this, this nice ongoing joke, because he tends to sort of appear without any ceremony at, at the most inopportune and unexpected places where he's really got no business or authority to be. He just sort of pops up because he's a representative of the very evil Goliath Corporation. So something will be going on, she'll be having one of her adventures and something will go badly wrong and she'll say, oh, shit. And he'll say that's Mr. Shit to you, and <laughs> and every every time it just makes me laugh. It's it's just yeah. so silly, and and in, yeah. and I think a subsequent one of the subsequent books is a character who's German, I think, a woman, who's Vietless Shit, which also which is W Y R T H L E S S, which of course can also be pronounced Worthless Shit. So it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you either like this stuff or you don't. I I think it's, there's quite a subtle thing very early on where a, a colleague. She refers to her, her colleague in the London office, either by her second name or by her first name, never by the whole name altogether. So it's quite late on that you suddenly realise the penny drops that she's actually called Paige Turner. Mm. <laughs> and her, her boss in Swindon is Colonel Braxton Hicks. And I don't even know why that's funny, because um, obviously Braxton Hicks is, a, is um, the type of contraction you get in pregnancy when, you, when the womb's sort of getting ready. I, I, Did you know right, that? I, I, no, I, yeah. I, I didn't. And I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I realise that now. But yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, why? and I, but why? And I found that <laughs> hilarious the first time. And then I thought, well, presumably somebody was actually called Braxton Hicks because <laughs> he yeah. was the person who kind of noted this phenomenon and it's called after him. So I don't even I can't even explain that. But I think that's that's the wonderful thing about mm. comedy. You can't always explain exactly what it is that mm. is so funny. You just know it makes you laugh. Yeah. I, 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 I was trying to think that the the, the, the series that it, it reminds me most of 
is have you ever read Malcolm Price's Abrus with Noir series? Oh yes, yes, I've read the first one. Yeah, because so that was that that the first one of those came out in the same year, and the authors actually is, uh, Malcolm Price is the same age as as Jasper Ford, in fact. Oh, that's interesting. It's a similar sort of yeah. provincial fantasy sort of thing. Yeah. So with, why does uh, one sort of massively take off, and the other one is a bit of a sort of cult thing? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I think I certainly think that. Jasper Ford has has really bought into the cult thing because he's he's got the because there's this I don't know whether whether it was him or 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 his fan base who set up the the Ford Fiesta thing. Yeah, well, he's <laughs> he's I I think he really likes what he does. You know, I get the impression yeah. his his website is really really oh, the, the website is insane. Beautifully curated, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's an you know adventure in itself. It's a real rabbit hole, yeah. and so many sort of funny things that you can go in. I, I love the um, if you put in uh, Romeo and Juliet, you get the Error four hundred four page. Mm. The star-crossed yeah. lovers you're looking for cannot be found. It's just, 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 <laughs> just so silly, and so and the, the text in that is actually very very funny. And worth mm. worth a look if anyone's got you know a couple of hours that they can they can risk going yeah. down that particular rabbit hole they will very much enjoy the Jasper Ford website. He interestingly he describes himself as a writer of absurdist fiction, which is a very economical and elegant way of describing what he does. I think mm. because I would say it's not sci-fi, despite no. the time manipulation. It's not fantasy, despite the fact that you will encounter the odd werewolf and it's definitely not crime although very sadly one of my local libraries does actually stock this and two of the sequels in the crime <laughs> crime fiction <laughs> section which I just think oh god you know the average sort of person looking for a tense psychological thriller or a bit of yeah. hardboard noir if they, if they took that out they would think well, what is this for god's sake <laughs> although much much more sadly I think the, the bookworm just looking through the you know the fiction shelves trying to find something new won't stumble across it and that that's the real sort of shame because um yeah. you know they, they will enjoy it because as i said it is basically a love letter to two book lovers that that's the way i i experience it anyway and there's an interesting thing that i wanted to ask you about if you picked up on it which is that it really does break the rules of fiction in terms of it being a first-person narrative. Ah, yes. You had picked this up, hadn't you? You're <laughs> oh, ahead yes. of me, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and yet. And yet. <laughs> the weird, now, the weirdest thing is, and, and okay, <laughs> on page 298, they're, they're talking about what's happened in Jane Eyre. Yeah. And Jane Eyre gets kidnapped. Yeah. And... Braxton waved his own copy of Jane Eyre at us. You've read it, of course. There isn't much to read, Victor replied. <laughs> Eyre was written in the first person. As soon as the protagonist is gone, it's anyone's guess as to what happens next. So, yeah. Ford is obviously aware <laughs> of the fact <laughs> yes. that in a first person novel, it is you are dependent on the view of the protagonist. And yep. yet, and yet, yeah. There are several chapters. Not many, and, but one of several tabs that are written for, are from the point of, or are from third person perspective. Yes, and there's one I can't remember where it happens now, but there's one literally where she leaves the scene and it carries on in her yes. absence. It's, it's yeah. quite extraordinary. And there's another very pointed reference when when um, our heroine is actually inside Jane Eyre, putting things right. Mr. Rochester himself actually notes that the book is a first person narrative and it cannot proceed in Jane's absence. 
and yet here we are yeah and so you think oh you cheeky what name you yeah. know you are deliberately baking this this cardinal rule and you don't care do you you, you know you're, you're that madcap aren't you that you just don't yeah. care and gets away with it yeah well good on him you know <laughs> Good on him. <laughs> it's, a, it's a risky thing to try, though. I mean, I... Yes, I don't recommend it. Absolutely not. It's it's interesting. Yeah. I, I think also that as as the series goes goes on, as I said, you know, I think it does become more sophisticated, even cleverer, for want of a better word. But I also think that the two standalone novels, which are probably the most recent, Shades of Grey and Early Riser, are really exceptionally good. I mean, funny, still funny, still quirky. And all those things, but I think stand up, you know, with any sort of um, contemporary literature, in terms of, of the kind of human foibles that, that they explore, and again, a wonderful and unique worldview that that he's created. And, and I think possibly if 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 Thursday next is not your cup of tea, if it's just a little bit too Faye and Winsome for you, then you know I would certainly and heartily recommend Shades of Grey and Early Riser and give give them a go instead and, and see how you get on with them. Mm. But but give give Dana you know give uh, the air affair another go as well because um you know it, it really has got some joyful stuff in it. Yeah, I th- I think I'm, I'm I'm tempted to read on again this time because I, I I read it on its own not long after it came out I think in paperback and for some reason I I, I didn't get the sequels I think my daughter right. did and she read them and I was going to borrow them from her and never got around to it. Oh, I would, I would say, yeah, do, do I, give I, I'm going to have to go back to them and, and uh, go through them this time, because I, I, I did enjoy yeah. re- rereading it. There's some very nice stuff, some, some very, yeah. very nice stuff. What I'd really like to do, if, if that's all right with you, is I would mm. like to actually just read a little bit of extract, and you can probably guess the extract that I'm going to read. It's Richard III, which mm. um, is, is just hilarious, I think. It's uh, so to give the, the sort of the context of this, Thursday's on a sort of a date with her erstwhile fiance, Landon Park Lane, and they decide to go, for all time's sake, to Richard III, which runs every Friday night in this one theatre in Swindon, late at night. <coughs> Nothing else happens in this theatre, it's dark the rest of the time. There's no cast. People just pitch up and then they they pick people sort of fairly randomly out of out of the audience to 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 take the roles and sometimes they actually have visiting VIP actual stars of the stage who are appearing in you know the kosher sort of productions in in the in the city and they come in the town rather and they come you know and, and do it although there's no sort of guarantee that they'll get picked but there you go and. It takes place, as I say, every Friday night. So um, let's let's go straight into Richard III. So the crowd applauded wildly. There was a moment's pause, and then the curtains reopened, revealing Richard at the side of the stage. He limped up and down the boards, eyeing the audience malevolently past a particularly ugly prosthetic nose. He opened his mouth to speak, and the whole audience erupted in unison. When is the winter of our discontent? Now, replied Richard with a cruel smile, is the winter of our discontent. A cheer went up to the chandeliers high in the ceiling. The play had begun. Landon and I cheered with them. Richard III was one of those plays that could repeal the law of diminishing returns. It could be enjoyed over and over again. Made glorious summer by this son of York, continued Richard, limping to the side of the stage. On the word summer, 600 people placed sunglasses on and looked up at an imaginary sun. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house and the deep bosom of the ocean buried, 
When were our brows bound, you know, with the audience? Now are our brows bound with Victoria's wreath, continued Richard, ignoring them completely. We must have been to this show 30 times, and even now I could feel myself mouthing along with the words. To the lascivious pleasing of a lute, continued Richard, saying lute loudly, as several other members of the audience gave alternative suggestions. Piano, shouted out one person near us. Backpipes, said another. Someone at the back, missing the cue entirely, shouted in a high voice, euphonium, halfway through the next line, and was drowned out when the audience yelled, pick a card, as Richard told them that he was not shaped for sportive tricks. And so it goes on and on and on when he gets to the line, and that's so lonely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me, the entire audience barks loudly, and it goes on and on and on. And finally we get, the play was the Garrick cut and lasted only about two and a half hours. At Bosworth Field, most of the audience ended up on the stage as they helped reenact the battle. Richard, Catesby and Richmond had to finish the play in the aisle as the battle raged about them. A pink pantomime horse appeared on cue when Richard offered to swap his kingdom for just such a beast. And the battle finally ended in the foyer. Richmond then took one of the girls from behind the ice cream counter as his Elizabeth and continued in his final speech from the balcony, with the audience below hailing him as the new King of England, the soldiers who had fought on Richard's side complaining their new allegiance. The play ended with Richard saying, God say amen. Amen, said the crowd amid happy applause. It had been a good show. The cast had done a fine job and no one had been seriously injured. <laughs> <laughs> It beats Rocky Horror Picture Show into a cocktail. I, I mean, that, that was exactly the, the thing that came <laughs> to my mind. It, 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 it's, it's Rocky Horror Picture Show, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, anyone, it's I think, with, with red blood in their veins wants to go to that, don't they? You know, if, if yeah. I could jump into a narrative of what this, this is the book I think I would jump into, you know, uh, <laughs> and I would go to that that uh, performance of Richard III and shout, shout out heartily and put my sunglasses on and all, all the rest of the nonsense. It's, it's, it's lovely. It's, it's a, it's a yeah. joyful, joyful book. Yeah. And yet I was just looking at the Wikipedia page, 76 publisher rejections before it was eventually accepted. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Amazing, yeah. yeah. I mean, I find <laughs> that amazing. Absolutely amazing. And in another way, not, not surprising at all. No. <laughs> but, but there you go. Take, take heart. All, yeah. all, uh, all writers. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, shall we move on to talking a bit about yourself? Do let's. Do let's. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I had a look at your profile on the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's rather daunting. <laughs> I shall read, I'll, I'll read a little, little bit from the beginning just to give, give our listeners a flavour. Lucy Flannery is an award-winning writer with credits in radio, theatre, film, TV, fiction and non-fiction. Her short play, Bear Hunt, will be performed at Inc. Festival in spring 2022. She was a finalist in the Exeter Novel Prize leads the Get Playwriting and Script Lab courses at Chichester Festival Theatre and is a member of the Writers Guild of Great Britain Audio Committee. Lucy was the 2020 Writer-in-Residence at the University of Plymouth in association with Literature Works. Credits include A Business Affair with Christopher Walken, Like a Daughter with Alison Steadman, The Story of Tracy Beaker, Tomorrow Will Be Too Late, and various magazines and anthologies. Her radio sitcoms Rent and Any Other Business are regularly repeated on BBC Radio 4 Extra. She was the creator of Havant Literary Festival and a core writer for You, Me and Everyone, which has been confirmed by Arts Council as the biggest crowdsourced literary art event in the UK. 
and Lucy is a Royal Literary Fund Consultant Fellow. Ah, yeah. where do we start? Uh, mistress of... And Alison Stedman. <laughs> Yeah. Well, oh, well, yeah, I was going to say mistress of none, some might say, spread, spread a bit thin, but uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's a very sort of female response. I started in comedy, it was my great love, and I kind of still live there, really, even though I do a lot of supposedly straightforward drama now, jokes will creep in, I cannot stop them, they, they you know, there is just something in, in me that sort of, you know, reflects that, that puts funny lines in and still likes the funny lines and still likes the comedy, so, and I'm, yeah, and I'm comfortable in that world, um, I'm very happy in that world, and I, and I have respect for it, because as, as you know, you've often remarked um, yourself, Jonathan, it, you know, comedy can be seen as a bit of a poor relation, to, yeah. to drama and one of your guests I can't remember who it was now was saying you know it's not that difficult to make people cry with a short story if you sort of talk about a dog dying or someone having cancer or something it can be a lot more of a challenge to make people laugh mm. um, and requires every bit as much craft and and you know and also you know requires good performers to, to bring it to life as well of course that's that's the other thing because uh, if you're a dramatist you're very dependent on other people getting it and getting mm. you and that's that includes obviously the director as well as as well as the cast so yeah I mean it's it's lovely doing comedy it's lovely doing drama it's like just looking further down on, on your Bayou Perry award judge oh god yeah that was a that was a long long time ago yeah <laughs> yeah and that was that was that was that, tremendously that interesting yeah. it was incredibly interesting yes it was it was a it was a remarkable experience everyone should do it at least once in their life I think yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow yeah, I mean, you've mentioned Lydia and George. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. I'd actually like mm. to talk about another project that I've got on at the moment, which is a new radio sitcom, audio right. sitcom, which I've co-written with another writer, and it's called Andover. And the co-writer is actually my son, uh, which right. I think is quite unusual. I, so far as we know, we are the only mother and son comedy writing partnership in the UK, if if yeah. not if not Swindon. Sound... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah. it's fairly unusual. Mm. So yeah, so that that's um, that's something, and it ties in so nicely with uh, what we were just discussing because it really does owe more than a passing nod. I think it's fair to say to to Jasper Ford because mm. we too have created a slightly alternative, well, a very alternative universe. I, I really like, as you've probably gathered by now, I like sort of visions of the world that are just a bit off kilter. So it's, it's this world, it's recognisable, but not. There's this other yeah. stuff going on. I, I think it's a really enjoyable sort of device to explore. And in Andover, the premise is that the defining cultural obsession in that universe is actually popular music of the 19 from the 1950s to the present day <laughs> and the reason that it's in andover is because one of the characters is actually the curator of the sir reg presley museum because in this world <laughs> the trogs were actually the the equal of the beatles they were they were right. that massive and they have as as enduring and wonderful uh, you know a legacy and a heritage and um, you either find that funny <laughs> or you I'm, don't, I'm, basically. I'm, I'm loving it already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it really is Marmite because it is quite, quite mad. And people say, no, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I can't do this surreal, absurdist thing. Or they say, I like it. And, it, and the ones who, who like it tend to like it a lot. 
So um, yeah, that, that's something that that's been delightful to write with my son, who is the writer Liam Offord, I should say, not you know, say who he actually is. And it's great working with a writer that gets you is in exactly the same way that I was saying about <laughs> yes. the, the director and the. Uh, we have got an incredibly similar um, sense of humour. That, that's obviously you know a prerequisite. We do laugh at the same things. We do find the same things very very funny. And, and he's great. I mean, he's he's sort of young, he's mid-twenties, so he has got a very authentic ear when it comes to how younger people talk, yeah. which which I wouldn't necessarily, you know, be as au fait with. He's also very, very stern and, and rigorous. He's always sort of challenging me and saying, oh, you know, does this narrative arc work? Is the structure tight enough? Are the stakes high enough? And, uh, and what I bring to the table is an encyclopedic knowledge of 1980s pop music. So you can see it's, it's extremely <laughs> well-balanced, um, you know, yeah, partnership. Uh, yeah, um, a match made in heaven, really. So, yeah. so, so that's lovely. And um, we're talking to producers and, and hopefully that will come to some kind of audio device near you at, at some point. Excellent. Hopefully, yeah. in, you know, maybe even next year, maybe 2022. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to sort of see how that one pans out. But uh, yeah, we, we do certainly tip, tip the hat towards Mr. Ford, I think, because uh, he was un- <laughs> unquestionably, I think, one, one of the influences, as indeed was the yeah. Trogs. Wild thing. Uh, yeah. yeah there's, and- there's, there's, there's something about the Trogs, isn't it? Because <laughs> they were just, they were pretty sui generis themselves, weren't they? The, 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 the just, oh, God, yes. The, 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 the phrase could no, have been no coined one, for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And of course, it was the, it's the Trogs tapes, isn't it, that actually was quite a yes. major influence on Spinal Tap, of course. You yeah, know, absolutely. The, the best films of all time, yeah. um, funniest films of all time. Mm. Yeah, they they are they, they are quite wonderful, I think, and, and just and hilarious and quite quite sort of. Because um, uh, there's there's a, there's a glorious thing that with all the royalties that Rich Presley made out of. Um, the wet, wet, wet thing, love is all around. Yeah, love is all around. Love is all around yeah. And he he invested most of it in a in a magazine investigating crop circles, didn't he, or something? He absolutely did. And there's something really strange about this because um, when Liam and I were kind of having our initial discussions and, and sort of just bouncing ideas off of each other, and we, we put a load of things in the hat and sort of took them out. One of the things that came out of the hat was nobody remembers the year 2001, and I generally can't remember which of us put that in? And we both sort of sniggered and snorted a bit and, that and, that, and didn't really do anything with that. That was one of the ones that sort of, you know, hit the, uh, went back to the drawing board. But when I started to research properly the trogs and everything, I, to my absolute joy, I discovered that 2001, which of course was the year that the Air Affair was published, don't forget, was also yeah. the year that that um, that Reg Presley published his book, his, his seminal work on crop circles. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it's meant to be. It is. You know, wow! Yes. Uh, you know, it's written in the stars. If ever a project was, mm. this is clearly. Yeah. It, you know, so yeah, very, very, very gratifying that that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, they're great. They're great. They're daft, and it's it's a nice project. And as I say, hopefully it will be out soon, sort of soonish. And you mentioned mm. at the top of the hour. You mentioned that I just had the premiere of another collaboration. Yeah, uh, this, I, this one, I, yeah, I, it was with Greg Moss. I, I Greg listened Moss. to that and, and I enjoyed it. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Sorry, yeah, I completely it's, it's, it's yeah. yeah, no, uh, no, thank no. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, sh- I should make clear, uh, Greg's not my son, 
He is he is the <laughs> husband of Kate, the um, internationally best-selling novelist and creator mm. of the Women's Prize for Fiction. And he and I have collaborated on a, on a couple of plays. And this is our most recent one, Lydia and George. And of course, the Austin aficionados listening in will have immediately twigged that this <laughs> is all about the youngest Miss Bennett and her miscreant husband and what happened 20 years after Pride and Prejudice. So, um, yeah, well, um, you heard it. What did you think of it? Rather than me describe I, it, you, you tell me. I thought it was great. I, I, it was, oh, thank you. I, 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 what I like, well, several things I like about it. It was, it was very plausible as a continuation story. Um, and that, that, that's the most important thing, I guess. Yeah. Uh, well, come from my point of view, where I wrote a totally implausible one. <laughs> leave that to one side, and because you could you could definitely see Lydia as as, as going into the theatre. Yeah. And there's it's it's a, it's a nice nice story that well don't want to give too much away. <laughs> well, well, because uh, we a little bit more than we have, and that the the the, um, the premise is that this is sort of twenty years after Pride and Prejudice. And they're still together, Lydia and George. And, and George is now a theatre impresario and Lydia is treading the boards as his leading lady and has actually discovered within herself some talent and some aptitude for, for the task and uh, their later sort of adventures. And a mysterious young woman appears seeking domestic work, but really wanting to get on the stage and also be, be an actor. And at the same time, back at Pemberley, Mrs Darcy's daughter, Willa is is supposedly in Bath with, with her aunt, but has sort of gone mysteriously incommunicado and um, sort of isn't getting in touch anymore and seems to have had a very mysterious and convenient injury to her wrist, which means that she can't write. And, and poor Elizabeth's getting increasingly concerned and worried about what's really going on. And, you you know, you don't have to be Einstein to figure out what's going on here. Yeah. It's, it's not a mystery. <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> It's not a whodunit, but but it is, I hope, very, very faithful and genuine and respectful of, mm. you know, what are <laughs> beloved characters and we don't play fast and loose. I mean, there's a whole universe of Austin and, and especially Pride and Preg. And some of it I think is great and some of it I think is is deeply awful. And I mean, I don't mind the zombies things and, and the mad, you know, really, really bonkers stuff I, I think if you're coming from a place of you know purity of heart as it were I think I think that's fine I think some of them are just just cash-ins or attempted cash-ins and then just sort of don't really work and and it's just a bit sad so we have stayed very very faithful to the book at the end she sort of says Jane Austen sort of says of the two of the Wickhams that they kind of you know that the early fire dies down and they become a bit indifferent to each other so we've, we've taken it from there and we have got them sort of saying yes there was a period when we were indifferent to each other but then we got through that and then this other stuff happened and I think that's okay I hope well I hope that you know that won't offend anybody the important thing is that it's a good story I think it, it's an entertaining story and it stands up in its own right you don't actually have to have read Pride and Prejudice, you don't actually have to have heard of Pride and Prejudice mm. to, to enjoy and understand Lydia and George and, and get, get what's going on. So, and it's but, nice to do something very, very cheerful and, and funny and, and quite witty as well. I mean, mm. there's, there's a sort of certain wit. It was fun going back and adopting those speech rhythms and, and, mm. and because it's, it's not Regency, 
it's that bit further on. It's very specifically set in 1837 with a new young queen on the throne and, and you know, an interest just at the start of the kind of the industrial, well, not start, but, but in the white heat of the Industrial Revolution with a lot of technological advances going on. And it does feel like a new world, a different world from that of Pride and Prejudice, but still obviously with the same characters, just, just 20 years older and sadder and wiser and maybe a little bit more tolerant of each other. <laughs> yeah, there, there was, uh, in the Q&A afterwards, was there, there was some, some chap who, who'd never read or never yeah. Yes. About and, and said he actually he actually really enjoyed it. Yes, bless him. Yes, so, and we didn't we didn't pay him. Yeah, <laughs> just, I was, just, just yeah. <laughs> to say that. So, so yeah, yeah, that was that was nice nice to hear. Really really yeah. nice to hear. Yeah, and and we were really blessed with a, a terrific cast, which included Helen Grace as Lydia. She's a um, well known stage and screen um, Holly Oaks and Brookie back in the day and everything. And uh, George was Timothy Watson, who of course is mm. extremely well known as nasty Rob Titchener in The Archers, but is in real life, you know, the loveliest person. And and he was great as George, I thought. He brought a real kind of humanity and mm. um, depth to George, because you're not quite sure if George is a, still a bit of a wrong and or if he's kind of mended his ways. And um, yeah, I, I thought he brought that ambiguity to it really well, really well. Yeah. Um, that was just, as you said, that was just like a rehearsed reading. And again, we are hoping for a proper tour in the fullness of time, which could be as early as 2022. So hopefully that the many, many listeners to this podcast in the in the future will you know be able to sort of rush out and buy a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do you prefer writing for the stage or for radio or for or for or for, or for what? What's your preferred oh, medium? That's a good question. That's a good question. I, I write more fiction now than I used to. I, I Mine has been quite an odd sort of career. It's not, it didn't go the way it's supposed to, because my first ever credit was a TV sitcom, which is really, really strange. Um, <laughs> it's hard to think that would happen now. Then I went to radio, then I went to film, then sort of, uh, and I always did a bit of fiction here and there, and then sort of quite late I came to theatre, and um, I didn't come to it any earlier because I think I was too intimidated. I felt I didn't really have the intellectual heft. I, I kind of felt like you had to be Samuel Beckett, you know, um, which I'm, you know, demonstrably not. And, and, and obviously that, that was, you know, that limitation was entirely of my own making. It was just something yeah. in my own mind. And once I got over that, I, I, oh God, it's like heroin. It's being a playwright. It's so addictive. <laughs> it's, it's just not, I've ever tried heroin, but I imagine it's, it's, I, I can honestly say the first time a play of mine was put on, the sort of five minutes before it started, I actually did think I was going to black out. I was so sick <laughs> and nervous and ill. And I'm not a person who's particularly nervy. Uh, I'm quite confident. I don't mind public speaking. You know, I have, um, when I ran a, a literary festival, quite often I had to sort of get up and give a speech, you know, at the drop of a hat, say a few mm. words kind of thing, or ask for money or something, whatever. Doesn't worry me at all. I can, I can do all that stuff. But there's something about that absolute surrendering of control to other people and being completely just not in control and, you know, not not any part of it and just having to accept and trust that these people are, are going to do it and, and do you proud. And, and, mm. and of course, it's wonderful. It's, it's terrifying. 
it's terrifying being a playwright and and it's great and, and when you do get a good cast and a good director and everything then it really is alchemy I think it's it's so so addictive you, I would never sort of not do it now I would mm. always have to sort of you know do a little bit of that I think and it's also very nice obviously writing for for the screen or or for audio which again is a whole other discipline and again I think it's, it's the joy of, of hearing people take your words and not just say them, but but transform them. There's nothing nicer than sort of writing a line where you think, oh, oh that's quite good, that's quite good, that. And then hearing an actor do something with it and you think, oh, that's not a good line, that's a great line because they've made it great. And and sometimes, and this is some in some ways even better, a slightly iffy line, <laughs> you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure about that, you know, and, and you know, I'm not sure that sings really. And then the actor gets hold of it and they do something and it soars that is you know really really thrilling and 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 you know really really humbling you know it's such a privilege I think to be in that position I mean I'm always incredibly grateful if people retweet even you know that I've written and respond to it so so um you know the the fact that there's a read uh, stories that I've written or, or come to plays that I've written or, or be in them you know and that and it's, it's it's delightful I think it's important to keep that sort of, I don't know what the word is, not, not modesty, I don't like that word very much, or humbleness, but just, just that sense of perspective that you're part of a collaborative process and you're one part of the team. Mm. You would look very, very silly, I think, standing up, just reading a play out to an audience. I think they demand their money back. You know, you need them. Um, yeah. And if you can't sort of surrender that control or if you don't recognise what other people are bringing to the equation, yeah. then you're better off just writing fiction and sort of keeping control of the whole process. That would be my it, view. It, it is. It is fascinating when I mean. It, it, I, I've only come close to it with with having actors reading old stories I've written. Yeah. When when they find something in there that yes. you didn't know was there. Yeah. Exactly. And exactly. That is fascinating. It is. It is. And I I can't ever predict what the line's going to be. But as you say, I didn't know there was a joke there. I didn't know there was a <laughs> moment there. You know. I didn't know there was a. <laughs> you know. Oh, moment there and yet they found it you know somewhere in in that text you know that that sort of you know that's happened that chemical process and it, it is very very thrilling and, and very surprising and as I say you never never sometimes the bit you think's really good is kind of okay and then there's other bit that you kind of think oh well I'll do you know it's, as I say it's the bit that really kind of pulls on the heartstrings or, or has people you know, weeping in the aisles kind of thing with, with you know, holding their sides rocking with laughter all, all, all of the above yeah. i just want to mention one last project if i may because mm, it just strike yeah. me that i'm sitting here and i just think i'm giving the impression that i've all i do is sort of plagiarize other writers especially <laughs> especially, especially those who <laughs> jay so i would like to just mention another project that i just completed it's called full harvest and this is mm. a collection of audio stories and this is overseen by Applause Rural Touring in connection with the South Downs National Park Authority. So these are stories that we're, I'm part of a seven strong team of writers and we wrote about different areas of the South Downs and we all concentrated on a river or two rivers. And these stories will be available from, I think, the beginning of July this year, July 2021, for people to listen either in situ because they are very, very geographically specific 
or obviously, mm. you know, in the comfort of, of your own home or your own you know, hammock in the garden. And I wrote about the rivers Itchen and Meehan, which are in Hampshire, and they're on the extreme western sort of boundary of, of South Downs National Park, which is beautiful, which is a really, really lovely place. And yeah, that was a really nice experience, a really lovely to sort of connect with, with nature and sort of, you know, we had a kind of sort of public engagement role as well. So uh, a lot of sort of um, community groups and, and individuals got in, um, interviewed and, and asked about sort of their experiences and how they interact with the, with the landscape and with the rivers particularly. And that was lovely. And yeah, I'm, I'm really sort of pleased with, with the, the two stories that I wrote. And I have to say, there's some very good jokes in there as well. So please, please do seek them out. <laughs> If you're coming to St. Catherine's Hill in Winchester, or if you're walking along the Meehan Valley, the old trail that used to be a railway, or if you're just sitting, you know, in your front room and you fancy listen, those are available. And the other stories are great as well. So, um, yeah, so that's called Full Harvest, and you can find it on the Applause Rural Touring website or on the South Downs National Park Authority. So from one podcaster to another, (laughs) as it were. (laughs) I think that's good to, yeah, yes, really it was, it yeah. was, yes, it was, it was lovely. And as I say, it's nice to to um, keep that fiction muscle going as well, just to sort of write that now and then is, is I think, very, very good for you, as, it, as it's good to, to work with, with, with good partners like Liam and like Greg. It's also yeah. sometimes very nice to sort of write on your own and, and have that refreshment for your own sort of voice as well. It's, it's great. I'll stop talking about myself now, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's what you're here for. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Uh, that's a that's a really interesting variety of work that that you've been involved with. Yes, and, um, uh, well, I think I think that is a really nice thing about now. Yeah. I think because because of things like your podcast and that, I, I think that things just open up. I think we're all a lot less sort of genre specific. That people aren't just in their kind of compartments, you know, their little pigeonholes of, oh, I'm a, yeah. I'm a drama writer, I'm a fiction writer, I write, you know, I'm a playwright, I'm a whatever. I think it's it's, it's great to be able to, to do it all and, and to experience it all and, and to hone your craft, you know, that's always that's always the, the aim, is just to get better all the time, you know, to get to be a better yeah. writer and, uh, and make and those each, connections. Each discipline informs others. Like, definitely, you know, definitely. Writing a bit of poetry helps you to sort of focus on individual words and how they're yes. placed together and that sort of thing. And, and Indeed, it all, yeah. It all sort of helps. Yeah. It absolutely does. It's, it's the, the love of words, which brings us back, you know, the love of words and the love of literature, which brings us right back to square one and, and I think just before it again. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that's that's the world, I think, that we all inhabit and, and recognise. Yeah. Mm. So this seems like a good point to bring that to a close so thank you very much for uh, for coming along thank you for having me it's been a great pleasure this place is intended to be free from adverts as if anyone would pay to advertise here anyway but if you'd like to follow and support our various other ventures lucy's on twitter as writer flanners and i'm on there as john pinnock my website is at jonathanpinnock.com and you can find lucy on the writers guild of great britain website And do please rate, review and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to Renaissance man Chris Fielden, who not only runs the world's most idiosyncratic literary contest, the Two Hull and Back Humorous Sort Story Competition, but is also the drummer in cult band Airbus. We'll be discussing Mort, the fourth book in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. See you then.